0: The following For the City Church sermon is part of our summer sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled, Under the Sun, from the Book of Ecclesiastes. We hope you enjoy it. Last week at the outdoor service, uh, Holly uh, and Colton were sitting there and I was a part of the Plum family. It was just the the adults, the kids, and me. And you can put me in whatever category you want. (laughs) Holly said to me, she goes, hey, so what has been the hardest part of preaching through Ecclesiastes thus far? And I said, well, I said, I got I to be honest with you, Holly. I said, it's all been challenging for sure. But in all reality, I said, the Lord has just given me a ton of grace through this book. And, and I've not found anything too tough to really just say that it was, any was stuck out to me. It was all been difficult, but it's all been, been equally just joyful and good. I don't know if I said that and I get to this week and this week is Rough. It's just rough. I told you at the beginning of the sermon series, there's going to be parts of this book that is, it's just a challenge. Well, welcome to it, because the challenge is real this week, uh, and, and here's the thing. The reason is, is, because there's going to be some things that we read that seem to, seem to, that's a key word, contradict truths that are clear in the Bible, and, and, and if you've never read things that seem to contradict the Bible, you've not read the Bible. I promise you. There are paradoxes all throughout the Bible. By the way, a paradox is, is a seemingly contradiction. Um, but when properly understood, it, it, it will make, probably prove to be true. With the Bible, it always proves to be true. Anytime we think there's a contradiction in the Bible, what's out of line is us. And we might need some more thinking there. We might need some more insight. We might need some more wisdom. Or we may just need to wait till we die and stand before the Lord and he tells us this is what is true. Right. I hope you don't all think you have perfect theology. You don't. Um, I don't either. Uh, We work to align our thinking, our hearts, and our minds with the Word of God and with what is clear. We can know what is clear, right? And so that's what we seek to preach and teach. But the the Bible uses paradoxes all the time to explore the full scope and nature of truth. Um, In in the Bible, right? Think, Think about some of the paradoxes that seem to be a contradiction. The virgin birth. If that, if that doesn't seem like a contradiction, well, then you don't understand science either. <laughs> Justified sinners. There's a language that you'll hear. Rich, poor man. Well, Which is it? Is he rich or is he poor? Um, the last shall be first. Hmm. And how about happy mourners? That's, a, that's another phrase you'll see in the Bible. All of those seem to be Challenges, paradoxes, and, and they can be startling at times. But here's the thing I think that if we dive in and we, man, the Lord helps us, you'll see that there's some deep spiritual richness that you can find when you labor. I've said this before. Uh, John Piper says, If you rake, you'll get leaves. If you dig, you might get diamonds. So may the Lord give us diamonds this morning. Because um, this, this gives us time to reflect on the passage, to investigate the truth, and sometimes it's very complex. I'll probably butcher this, but you'll, you'll get the main concept. There were some students who went into a college class, and the professor gave them a fish, like uh, to dissect and to look at, and a book and a pen. And he said, I want you to go, and I want you, here's your lesson, look at the fish. Jot down what you notice. Students do that, one student comes back at the end of a day, he hands his, his notebook in, professor hands it back, doesn't even look at it, says, keep looking at the fish. This goes on for days, and the student gets very frustrated. And, and, and so now he takes the time, he reads it, he says, you got to keep looking. By the time this is done, you can actually read this little book about this fish. Uh, at first, it was like, yeah, it has scales, and it has gills, and it has this, but, but this, this student went and noticed the difference in the size of teeth, and how they changed, and the dimensions, and the this, and the that. In every little thing, i got to tell you, today's text, it's kind of like that. We've got to work hard to see what is being said. So remember where we left off two weeks ago. For those who don't remember, here's a fresh reminder. Verse 13 is a hinge point to this text, and it says this, consider, consider, think about the work of God. And then he says this statement, who can make straight what he, God, has made crooked? Okay. Okay. Well, no easy believism is to be found in this text. Think over the text. Part of, By the way, part of growing in grace, part of growing in the word of God is to look beyond our present difficulties and to see the work of God, to accept all the crooked things in life and, and know that God has the power to make them straight. But sometimes he leaves them a little bit out of whack. So rather, listen, than turning away from the Lord when that happens in your life, and boy, is it tempting to do that, you can, by God's grace, turn to the Lord and ask for help and comfort in your times of need. So you ready? Here's your first point. It's not that comforting. The Bible doesn't fit into any of our neat and tidy categories or tribes, (laughs) as much as we'd like it to. Uh, I mean, seriously, I love systematic theology. If you don't know what that means, it doesn't matter. Um, but sometimes you can take the Bible and shove it into your lens instead of being a biblical theologian and letting it wreck your little lens if need be at times, right? Because the aim of systematic theology is to know God, right? There are times where I come to the Bible and, and I don't necessarily get what's being said here, but I can understand the scope What we ought not do is just give trite little answers to people who have deep hurts and just say, well, you know, God loves you. Well, he does. But man, you need more than that when when life is hard. It doesn't feel like love right now. So you got to point to a greater truth, which is God's love is shown in he sent his son to die in your place. And what you deserved was the wrath of God. And instead he offers you grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and he will adopt you into his family right? Like we need that truth. But sometimes when we're reading the word of God, it, it's, it can be a little confusing. Any, anyone agree with that? Yes. Okay, good. The rest of you, read your Bible. Um, <laughs> look at verses 14 and 15 with me. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Ready? That's easy. Who, who's with me? I can obey this text. Yeah. yeah. Banks full, right? Fridge full, Friend, all my little areas of life full. be joyful. OK, I got this. And he says, "And hey, in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. But well, not my God. <laughs> well, then you need to get a different God. Because the God of the Bible has made the one, and he's allowed the other. He's brought it into your life. Why? So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. What's that mean? It it means we're dependent creatures. We're dependent. We're not independent. We're interdependent, but we're dependent. And you, here's, here's, ready? New slice. You don't know it all. I don't know it all. I don't understand all the complexities of why things happen in life, but I can trust the one who does know it all. It keeps me dependent upon him to understand that I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I can know what's going to happen in my ultimate future in Christ. Right? That's jumping ahead just a tad. He says, in my vain life, by the way, vain is a word he loves. It can mean vapor. It can mean mist. It can mean smoke. Some say it means meaningless. I think it's a bad translation. Think enigmatic. It it just means it's a mystery. It's so hard to understand. In my, my hard to understand life, I've seen everything, he says. I've seen it all. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. Meaning, someone who was doing a good thing perishes in doing his good thing. Right? You, you could think of soldiers who, who maybe were defending their country, and they're doing this right thing, and they die. They die. Man, he was a righteous man. He was such a good guy. Growing up, such a good girl. In high school, always defending those who didn't defend themselves and couldn't defend themselves. He was there, and he just dies. Then he says, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life by evil doing, right? That person's been wicked since I met them. Blah, 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 blah. They did this. They used to rob banks, kick puppies. Like it was terrible. And, and he's living to 97, smoking three packs a day, and just not caring about anyone except himself. What's up with that? It doesn't seem. Good, doesn't seem right. As a matter of fact, I would say that that paradox almost seems, almost seems, pay attention to my words, to contradict what the Bible says in other places. As a matter of fact, like all throughout the Bible, God told his people that if they did what he said, right, that he would bless them. He would bless them, that he would give them long life, and that they would live in the land flowing with milk and honey. And yet, there are times within the Bible that doesn't seem to happen. So is God lying? No. No, he's not at all. He's also threatened to punish his enemies with death for their disobedience. So which one is it? See, and and don't forget, Solomon wrote three books of the Bible, as far as we can tell. He wrote Proverbs. My guess is he wrote Proverbs throughout his life, okay? Probably the first thing that he wrote was Song of Solomon. Man, he's young. He's in love. I mean, it's just everything is awesome. This is probably before a thousand wives. This is like, this is the girl, right? My guess is he probably wrote Ecclesiastes either on his deathbed or after he's dead and someone wrote it for him and they're reflecting on life. That's my guess. I could be wrong. I don't know. But here's the point. Life is enigmatic. Things are not how they should be at times. And we all know it. We live in a fallen and broken world. Missionaries go to share the gospel that gives life to people and they get martyred. I mean, while their enemies, live another day to terrorize the church. This doesn't seem right, Lord. Innocent victims get gunned down in the streets while their killers sometimes get life in jail. It doesn't seem right. And I say maybe. Maybe they don't even get caught. Maybe they do. Maybe there's a technicality. And then they get to have a Netflix series talking about the why they did it. And they get to collect royalties. Seems unfair, doesn't it? I mean, God is the author of both good and bad days. Does that, does that make you a little uncomfortable? It should. It makes me uncomfortable. Now, he's ultimately good. But he does allow what we think are bad things and, and bad things to come in. The murder of Christ was a horrible thing. Well, yeah, but God didn't know that was going to happen. Wrong. Wrong. Before the foundation of the earth, God sent his son, who is the Lamb of God, to be slain. It was his plan from the beginning, before sin had ever entered human time, because God's outside of time, and he sees the scope of it all, and yet he's going to bring beauty from the ashes of that moment. So does it sound strange to you to think about that God is the author of good and bad days? Is that a new concept for you? It may be. Stay in your seat. (laughs) Keep thinking. By the way, that's a really important component of Christianity, thinking. I know a lot of people don't like to do it. They just want easy believism. Give me a trite saying that I could share on Instagram. Well those bumper stickers only work for a while, but when suffering comes, they cease to help. Or let me ask you a question. Are you a karma Christian? There's no such thing, by the way. There's really not. But, but I think a lot of times people, they, they, they push karma into Christianity and they end up with some weird little quasi-religion. I don't know what you want to call it. Most people do it, but karma is a theological concept that's found in Buddhism and Hinduism. That's where it's found, right? And it has this idea that if you do good, your life will go good, and then you know your reincarnation, you'll come back as a prince or as a princess, but if you're bad, you come back as like a horsefly, and you like to land on poo. Right? If you live a bad life, if you do bad things, then, then bad things will happen to you. Can I tell you how many times people trying to do well have, have really hurt people with that kind of thinking? My wife and I lost a child, and I remember a well-meaning Christian at one time, uh, on, while we were still in the hospital, came and asked us, well, do you have any unrepentant sin? None that I'm aware of. Thank you very much. That was helpful. Um, now, I'm not saying that, that things don't happen because of our sin. You can't put God in this little box and think you understand it all. Well, suffering never happens because of sin. Well, actually, ultimately, all suffering happens because of sin, but it doesn't mean because of your personal sin right john 9 says is it this man or this man's parents that that caused this man to be blind which whose sin is it is it his or his parents and jesus says neither it's so that the works of god might be revealed or displayed in this moment and he heals him and he rejoices so why was that suffering for god's glory for God's glory. But then there's another time in John 5 where someone's suffering, and, and it's pretty clear, I think, that if you look at it, he's been 38 years as an invalid, and, and, and the disciples say, oh, what's up with this guy, man? He's like just laying here by the pool hoping to get kicked in, stir up the waters, and get a healing. Well, he goes, you know, I'll heal him. He heals him, and he says, pick up your bat and go. And by the way, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What's worse than 38 years of being an invalid? Hell. And so he's, he's letting him know, listen, you're in this situation. This, this is a punishment. Okay, what about Luke 13 when the tower of uh, falls and people die? It's a general calamity. But then in the same chapter of Luke 13, you find that Satan is tormenting people. And so there's demonic oppression. And maybe that's why you're hurt. You don't always know. That's the point. You don't always know why suffering happens, but you, in your attempts to maybe make it make sense, you will adapt a thinking, and you'll call it karma Christianity, and it's just wrong. You should reject this idea that if I do good, then guaranteed good things happen in this moment. If I do bad, then maybe bad things happen. No, it's not always the way it is. Sometimes you do bad things, and you look like you succeed on this side of eternity, Doesn't mean it's wise, doesn't mean you should do it. Sometimes you do good and you suffer. Like, I don't know, Jesus, who's perfect. See, the point is clear. God's ways with the world are so confusing at times that one should enjoy the good days, but also recognize and be aware that you have no idea what's to come. You and I are all one phone call, one text message, one reading post on Facebook away from your life changing in ways you would never imagine. We just are. It's fragile. Life is so fragile. Is that how you understand God? Let me me say it once again. I think I've said it, but this is not an easy thing to consider, but you ought to consider it. God's word says, consider this. Think it over. Chew it up, right? Learn what he's saying. See, the preacher has, has found that there's li- these living examples seemingly contradict things that were written in Proverbs. <laughs> if you read Proverbs, man, most of the time, do this, get this, right? Spank a kid, always pay attention and obey, right? Like love your wife, she'll love you back, right? Don't hold any fire close to your chest because you're going to guaranteed get burned, right? Like, they, man, this just makes sense. I love it. Oh, it's so good for my little brain just to think about those things because I got it. But then sometimes you do that. You raise a kid in the way of the Lord, and they want nothing to do with God. They want nothing to do with the church. They want nothing to do with the gospel. And they just look at you and say, I don't want your Jesus. And you're like, but I did the thing. I did the thing. God doesn't owe you. He doesn't owe you. He doesn't owe me. By the way, the only thing God owes you and me apart from grace is wrath. That's what you are owed. God does owe you, actually. Scratch what I said from the record. Because of our sin, the wages of sin is death. Eternal death, by the way. Physical death, by the way. What he owes you and I is hell. Oh, but he's so kind, he's given us his son to receive as grace. And when we do, we get forgiveness, we get justification, we get fully righteous, fully forgiven, adopted into the family of God, never to leave his hand. We get love, steadfast love, mercy. That's what we get, but we don't deserve that. If you think you deserve that, you have a strange religion, but it's not Christianity. You can't deserve grace. You don't deserve grace, you receive grace with thanksgiving and trust it by faith. Joseph, righteous man, is not sinless, righteous man, gets thrown in a ditch, left for dead by his brothers, sold into slavery, continues to do well, meets a, a lady named Potiphar's wife, right? And uh, she, she wants to engage, that's all I get, wants to engage in sexual relations with him, Said he was a strong, handsome, strapping young man out there working in the field, I don't know, building pyramids, doing his thing, right? She wants to engage in sexual relations. He does not want to dishonor God. So she accuses him of rape. And he goes to jail and suffers some more. For what? For doing what's right. Man, how about Job? Once again, how about Jesus? You can live a a very good, righteous life the best you can with the knowledge you have by the power of the Holy Spirit and bad things can still happen to you. And sometimes you can just live a horrible, wretched life and the onlooking world says, they seem to be doing great. They never worry about money. And somehow, some way, their kids turned out good. How? Does it bother you? You've got to wrestle with these things. If not, God will put you in a place where you'll have to wrestle with them. He'll put a crook in your road. I promise you. Why? Because he loves you. <laughs> he loves you. He won't let you just have surface level trust in him. He wants you to go deep and know that you can trust me in the deep end of the pool. I got you, kid. Oh, we just don't like that, though. It makes us uncomfortable. See, the preacher's telling us whether things seem crooked or straight, we need to see our current life circumstances in terms of the sovereignty of an almighty, powerful God. That's what he's saying. See, trusting in the sovereign goodness of God helps us know how to respond in joys and in trials. To know that he is good, whether it's a day of prosperity or, you know, the sun is shining, the birds are singing, right? They're chirping, bank accounts full, tables full, you've got friends, you've got family, everything's awesome. Rejoice. Or whether it's a day of adversity, right? Like the sun, you ain't seen the sun in three darn days, right? Had to think about that, clean it up. Birds are nowhere to be found. You can't hear them if you tried. You're homeless. The soup kitchen just hit bankrupt when they went to scoop it out. You got nothing consider God's allowed both of these to happen in your life and so by God's grace Christian listen worship him worship him with tears streaming down your face if need be and recognize this is the day that the Lord has made oh, not my God Well, then you don't have the God of the Bible you just don't <laughs> and I don't want you to continue to think you do. Why? Because it will never bring you the peace you long for. Join Job by God's grace, and believe this with faith when he says to his wife, shall we receive good from God, meaning prosperity, and shall we not receive evil, which is the day of adversity? He says, no, we're going to worship God. We're going to worship him. See, both good and bad days come through the hands of our loving Father. Therefore, entrust yourself and your life to the sovereign care of God, who, listen, loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Let's keep rocking and rolling. Verse 16 and 18 doesn't get easier. You're like, well, that wasn't easy. I know. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Who wants that? Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Well, then is a little bit okay? Neither be a fool. I can agree with that. Why should you die before your time? Is that possible? I thought you were sovereign. It's, it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. What? And from the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. <laughs> Anybody else ready for this one? You want to come up, preach, right? This is like, what are you saying? It's like hieroglyphics, right? Like at surface level, it could seem really cynical and he might be right. Who knows? He might be. It sure sounds like Solomon saying this essentially, listen, if the good people of the world perish, then while evildoers do good or, or, or don't do good and they live long and prosper, then it sounds like he's saying, then why be good? You ever had that thought? Well, that was my teenage life. <laughs> yeah, if good people die, then, well, then, why hold my hand with it from anything? I'm going to just enjoy it all. Eat, drink, be merry. I didn't even understand that thing, but I was living it, man. I had the tattoo, right? Um, if only the good die young, then there's nothing to be gained by trying to be good. That's one view. It's a cynical view. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. How about another thought? Here's something else to consider. Notice the word overly in the text. I think it's important. When he tells us not to be overly righteous, I I really think he's saying, don't don't be self-righteous. Don't be self-righteous thinking that if you do these things, you go to church every Sunday, you read your Bible through in a year, maybe you're really like, you're a go-getter, and so you memorize the book of Romans and John, right, in five days. And you tell everybody about it. And you post it online and you make sure everyone else knows they're a loser because they don't do that. And then you think, okay, I got God in my place. He owes me. Mm, No, he really doesn't. Don't be overly wicked. It's a little bit okay. It's not okay. Just in case you're like, hey, is this my life verse? (laughs) Right? Like teens are like, yes, I hear you preacher. Um, Right? Like What's, what's he saying here's the thing don't pretend to be more spiritual than Jesus right by saying you never sin come on well, I don't, I'm not a liar yes you are well, I just lie a little bit that's called a liar all right right like don't, don't pretend you're more spiritual than God know that you you do sin but don't be overly wicked don't just do whatever you think you want to do no Seek to live life walking with God and submit to him humbly. And when you sin, I like that word better than blow it. Because blow it's a mistake. But when you sin, you recognize, oh God, I've sinned again. Thank you for sending Jesus to save a sinner like me. Wash me clean. Scrub this out of my heart. Give my heart desires to long for you in the ways of things that are right. I want to walk the narrow path of righteousness as I follow you. I mean, too many times it's just too easy to prop ourselves up thinking that that our own self-righteousness is something to be excited about, like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, right? Yeah, I I don't need you, Dad. I'm out here. I've done it. You owe me. That's what he's saying, right? But when suffering comes, you you start to say things like this. Doesn't, you don't say this because you know better. Doesn't God know who I am? Hasn't he seen what I've done for him? Oh, my family, we moved to this, this tribe of people, and to, to reach them, they don't even know God, and, and, and now we're being persecuted. Does God not know who I am? Which is one step away from saying, Who does God think He is? By the way, I hear pastors sometimes encourage that kind of thinking and behavior. I would say, Whoa, be careful. I'd watch your lips, not because God will crush you like a grape, but because we see in a mirror dimly lit. And it would be a really bad thing to start saying God is not good because it means you've either not understood the gospel or you've forgotten. Now, is God patient with that? (laughs) Yeah, he is. He is. Why? Because he's good. He's a God of steadfast love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. And he's going to probably come kindly take you by the hand and say, let's go get some ice cream. Not really, right? But like, he's kind. He's patient. But you ought not blaspheme God. See, here's the thing. On the flip side of the coin, don't be overly wicked. Let me just touch that just for a minute more. We should not be unrighteous, of course, right? Like, I think we get that. What, what the Bible is not saying, it's cool to be a little wicked. He's not saying that at all. But when it comes to sin, he, we understand there's no such thing as a small sin. Even the smallest sin is enough to send Christ to the cross to have to pay for it. Because when, man, we, we really need to understand God's holiness and his greatness, way more than we do and I, I mean i know some of you really understand it but we don't understand the full immensity because if we did we'd never think the word small when when in relation to sin it's all great rebellion against a gloriously perfect god it's huge but i gotta tell you not all sin is created equal i didn't say that as an accident you're like whoa wait a minute it's all equal as in enough to damn you right? It's enough to damn you. But let me just tell you right now, thinking about robbing a bank is sin. Taking a nine and pistol whipping grandma and taking the cash is worse. You're like, well, where do you see that in the Bible? Jesus says he's standing before Pilate. Pilate asked him, who has the greater sin? Is it me or is it the Jews that handed you over? And Jesus said, it's those who handed me over, which implies greater sin. But guess what, Pilate? You're still guilty. You're still guilty. So what's he saying about this whole wicked things? What, he's saying don't live a life of theft and deception and lust and greed. Don't be a fool thinking it's okay because you're in grace. Don't, don't do that. Your aim's not to dance so close to the fire that you never get burnt, right? But you just play with it. I got a little singe. I oh, lost some hair there. It's foolishness. Would you put a baby rattlesnake in the crib with your kid, hoping it wouldn't grow up someday and bite? Of course not. Then why do you play with sin? Don't don't think you're all that in a bag of chips. You're overly righteous, right? Don't be overly wicked, but know this. Oh, you're a sinner who needs grace. But know this. God has overcome your sin, and He has set you free, so that you now may, New Testament Christian, have the Holy Spirit of God reject and run, flee from sin. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen says, "No temptation is overtaking you; it's not common to man. God is faithful; He will not let you be tempted beyond your own ability. But with that temptation, He will provide the way of escape." Which, listen, translation ready. As a Christian, you don't have to sin. You're not a victim of sin. You've been set free. I'm not saying you'll never sin. That's what he's saying. Don't be overly wicked. Don't say, well, since I, since I blew it and I, I lost it in my mind, then I ought to just go wild with it. Don't, don't be overly wicked. Turn. Run to your Father. Receive empowering grace and forgiveness. Okay? That's the best I can say about that text. You're like, well, I got questions. So do I. Let's hang out. We'll keep talking. How should we live then? Look at at what he says. In the fear of God. By the way, he asked this same question and talks about this same thing in chapter one. I think it's verse 13. That's from my brain. Um, You can look it up. He's asking the same thing, but that's in view of under the sun, apart from God. He's now got God in his equation as he's thinking about these things, and he is working and so do we. The right way for us to live is in the fear of God. That's how we live. That keeps us from thinking we're too righteous, and it keeps us from being overly wicked. I look at how great God is. I realize (laughs) no room for overly righteous here, right? If I hang out with Kevin, I'm like, I'm pretty awesome. Just kidding. Kevin beats me in righteousness, (laughs) right? Um, But that's not what we do all the time. Sometimes we hang out with the fool's parade. Why? So we feel better about ourselves. Right? But when I fear God, I don't want to be overly wicked either. Why? Because God is worthy of awe, praise, adoration, humbling ourselves and submitting ourselves under his mighty hand. All right. Let's take the last 10 verses in one chunk. I'll give a little commentary on them. We'll go down and look at the last point because we're quickly running out of time. This is heavy stuff, though. This could be like 17 sermons. Um, All right. Verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Okay. This sounds like something I can get down with, right? Solomon sees much value in wisdom. All right. Good. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Man, homeboy's getting it. seems like he's back on track, right? Everyone's a sinner, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, good. Let's keep going. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. We all need to apply that in our lives. Lest you hear your servant cursing you, right? Someone's talking bad about you. Because listen, your heart knows that many times you have cursed others. (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. If you're paying attention, that's funny, right? Hey, don't go getting all upset when someone says something about you because if we could be real and we could play a DVD of your entire life, you would see you have said bad things about people too. So get over it and get over yourself and keep moving, right? By the way, side note, not in the sermon notes, every one of you and I, we have a choice of whether we're going to live constantly upset and mad about everything and take offense about everything and eliminate everyone from our lives because I'm just so mad. Or you can just say, man, I'm just going to let love cover a multitude of sin and I'm going to keep loving you. I'm telling you, the second one's the better way to go. Don't believe me. Well, trust the Lord. Okay. All this I've tested by wisdom, he said. I will be wise. But it was far from me. And that's that's because, listen, wisdom's a gift from God. He's saying even wisdom, when I try to grab it, it's like vapor. I sometimes think I get it. But then there's things that happen in life I don't understand. Keeps us dependent, by the way. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can, who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the schemes of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something... What really, Solomon, why is this in here? I find something more bitter than Death. The woman (laughs) whose heart is snares and nets. By the way, just for anyone who's like, oh, of course, right? Like if a woman was writing this, she could probably say this about men and it would be true too. You ever had someone break your heart? You're like, I just hate all women. I hate all men. Okay. Solomon, I think is there. He's having a hard day. And this is before Hallmark. (laughs) The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. We got to. You have to pause here. Listen, I, I think Solomon, this is, a, this is woo, I'm, I'm over here, Bible's there, right? I think it's probably, see, a lot of people say this is Lady Wisdom and, and, and Lady Folly from Proverbs, but I think, mm, no, I think that that makes me feel more comfortable. I don't think that's what's happening here, though. I really don't. I think that my guess is this is the person he was talking about in the Song of Solomon, and, and she just broke his heart. He went after women who didn't love God, Yahweh, by the way, and he gave himself over to much lust, and it has wrecked him. Read Proverbs if you don't believe me. He has a lot to say about that. Back here now. I don't know, though. I don't know. But look what he says, right? He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. you might think, well, how this, doesn't, this doesn't apply to me. He had a thousand women. Oh, it applies to you because you can have more than a thousand online. Oh, you can have a, way more than a thousand online. And they all seek to draw you away from the God who loves you. Flee from every sexual temptation. Flee. Run. Sex is a good gift given by God to be enjoyed in the confinements of marriage between a man and a woman, one flesh. That's it. And if he hasn't provided that, then you just wait. Easier said than done. I get it. But he's saying, listen, it will drag your soul to hell. Flee. Fear God. Fear God. He says, behold, this is what I found. The preacher says, while well, adding one thing to another, find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found one man among a thousand. I have found, <laughs> oh my gosh, but a, a woman among all these I have not found. Not a righteous one. Nope. note. this alone I have found, though that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. I can get down with that. What is the point of all that? I'm going to say as succinct as possible. At this point, there's really two main choices. One is to tap out and completely give up to despair, (laughs) right? Right, like, man, every time I try to do good, now I've got this woman, she's a snare, and she's ruined my life, and this has ruined my life, and I've sought joy and happiness under the sun, but I can't find it. But here's the thing, the preacher never did that. He didn't give up, and neither should we. The other option is to admit that you and I are finite, and some things we cannot understand, And we can trust the God of the universe who has the answers to all the biggest questions that have ever existed. And one day, maybe before you die, and if not, when you die, he will reveal what is wisdom and what is true. But you can't even bank on being wise. He's saying... Listen, I've sought happiness, joy, and contentment in all my life. And we've looked at all the crazy debauchery that he's looked at, trying to find happiness, joy, and life. And now he's saying, well, I'll try the right thing. I'll look for wisdom. And he's saying, even that eludes me. It's just vapor. I think I got it, but it's gone. It's gone. But, but here's the thing. We should trust that God has the answers. And we should seek the answers in his word. And we should ask for him to reveal wisdom to us. James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. But trust that he will give it. Because if you are double-minded and shifty and and thinking, well, I'll believe you and the tarot cards, you should expect to get nothing from God. Trust him. What's the, the point? I think the point is this, that... You wait for whatever wisdom God's willing to provide in a circumstance and know that he's good in all of it, because that's the downward path of humility and what it looks like to have faith in Christ. If you only trust God when you know everything, you don't trust God, you trust yourself. I think that's the point. Yes, it's true that we're to seek wisdom from the word of God. The Bible says that wisdom is pricier than pearls, Job says, better than jewels, Proverbs says. How much better to get wisdom than gold, Proverbs 16, 16. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook, Proverbs 18, 4. So we should try as hard as we can to understand the meaning of life and the things that happen and what to do that's most glorifying to Christ in any given moment. But we should also be content to confess that we don't always understand every mystery that happens in our life. And to just many times need to close our mouths and put our face in the dust and trust God and worship. And worship. By the way, that alone is wisdom. <clears throat> that alone is wisdom to say, I, I, Lord, I, I've, I've sought you, I've sought counsel, I've sought your word, I've asked, I don't know, but I trust you. That's it's a wise person. Knowing the limits of wisdom is part of wisdom. It's part of wisdom to understand we don't know at all. So, Solomon here has been hard searching for wisdom, digging deep for the purpose of life, joins you two in saying, I still have not found what I'm looking for. He really hasn't. So, what's he to do? Well, I think he's doing what we all should do keep kicking at the darkness until it sheds some light. Just keep kicking at it. Keep going to God. Keep going to his word. Keep going to prayer. Keep seeking. Get entrenched in a gospel-believing, Jesus-loving community and search him out. Search him out. Notice he says at the end, he says, See this alone I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought many schemes. In comparison to, to verse 13, that's wisdom. Because he's saying, yeah, maybe, maybe it's not always God making things crooked. Maybe we just, we just don't trust him and we keep making stuff crooked. Well, we'll not always have the answers to the many whys in life. We don't always understand why God has put some particular crook in the road, you know what I mean? Um, so what's the point, Ready? The point is that God knows why He put that there, and you can trust Him. Think about your, your most difficult thing right now in your life. And i by the way, all week been thinking about it red, alert, boom in my face. How can you know God's trustworthy in that moment? I mean, seriously, hang in there. How can you know he's trustworthy? How can you anchor your soul to him in that moment? Ready? Last point. And and it won't take as long as the first, I promise. The gospel is the paradox of all paradoxes. How do you know? You look to Christ. You look to the gospel to know he's good when suffering comes. You look to the bloody cross in the empty tomb to know he's good. You want to hear some paradoxes? Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. He also will return and he will make war against his enemies. He's a lion and he's a lamb. What? He's the meekest man who ever walked the earth, yet he will strike down the rebellious nations and tread the wine presses of God's wrath and fury. Make no mistake about it. He will save to the uttermost by pouring out grace and mercy and he will rule with an rod of iron, those who will not bend their knees and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jonathan Edwards draws out this unique comparison and paradoxical in his famous sermon. So listen to this quote, the excellencies of Christ, Jesus is both lion and lamb. He possesses lion-like qualities, ferocious, powerful, regal, and appropriately terrifying. He is full of power, glory, and dominion. A lamb is quite opposite, gentle, vulnerable, an animal of prey. How can Jesus be both? He is both judge of all creation and friend of sinners. He is both priest and atoning sacrifice. He is both strong and gentle, worthy and lowly, infinitely holy, yet merciful towards his enemies. End quote. I think many times we don't trust the Jesus of the Bible because we don't know the Jesus of the Bible. We know the Jesus of our imagination. But we've made Jesus in our image. Get to know Jesus. Jesus. And if you're like, I, I think I do. Get to know him more. Oh, we're going to look at him deep and hard in the book of Luke. You'll find he's way greater than you've ever imagined. And you can trust him with your eternity. And if you can trust him with your eternity, you can certainly trust him with whatever suffering has come your way in this moment. You can. Consider the work of your Savior. Right? I'm going to read one last thing. Because, man, I tell you, it is—it has been a real challenge to me, and I pray it's an exhortation to you. And then we'll wrap it up. We'll finish, and then we'll enjoy communion together, and we'll sing a few more songs. Um, but but I really need you to think about this, right? So so here's the deal. Now, this is from a commentary that I, I've been working with, and uh, it's from the book of Ecclesiastes, on the book of Ecclesiastes. And here's what it says. He, it says this. Here is the testimony that James Montgomery Boyce gave the last time he spoke to his congregation at Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church. Dr. Boyce had been diagnosed with a fatal and aggressive cancer. He had only weeks to live. This was a crook in his lot. So Dr. Boyce raised a question that was based on the sovereignty and goodness of God. If God does something in your life, he asked, would you change it? So as I read that, I'm asking myself. Uh, By the way, to say it the way Koalath would have said it, if God gave gave you something crooked, would you make it straight if you had the power? I think that's how he would say it. I mean, really, would you? Uh, Would you change disabilities, disease, death? Would you change your career? Would you change your finances? Would you change your appearance? Would you change your situation in life? Or would you trust God for all the crooked things that are in life and wait for him to make them straight, just like Jesus did when he died for you upon the cross? He doesn't mean that you shouldn't pray, doesn't mean that you shouldn't seek to change certain situations, but if they don't change. Dr. Boyce answered his own rhetorical question by testifying to the goodness of God's sovereign will. He said that if we tried to change what God has done, then it wouldn't be as good. We'd only make it worse the preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes said something similar. Consider the work of God, he said. Do not try to straighten out what God has made crooked. Our Savior would tell us the same thing when you consider the work of God. He would say, remember my love for you through the crooked cross and trust our Father to straighten everything out in his good time. I read that, and I'm like, by faith, I want to believe that. But there are crooked things in my life, and I would just, man, if I had the easy button, I'd slam it home. I'd just slam it home. Thankfully, I'm not God. Thankfully, I'm not God. Tired of paradoxes? Me too. So let me finish with some straight logic. I need logic. My brain works with logic. Romans 8.32 says this. He who did not spare his own son. So God the Father did not spare his own son. But he gave him up. Don't ever think that God wasn't involved in the crucifixion of Christ. I'm going to say something that might cause you real challenges. But we know that it pleased the Father to crush his son. Why? Because he saw the glory beyond that moment and he knew that that was the way to bring sinners home to his everlasting enjoyment. And Jesus knew it too. Don't think he was a victim. Don't you lessen what God did upon that cross. Because in Hebrews 12, 2, I think, for the joy of the cross, Jesus endured. He went, Father, if this is what you say we do, this is what we do because it's the best plan ever. Oh, I will willingly take it on. Now, in his humanity, in the garden, he was sweating drops of blood. If there be another way, Father, let's do that. But if not, oh, I'll just I'll embrace it. I'll endure it. That's how we approach suffering. Oh, God, if there be another way, this is what I desire. But if not, I trust you. I will. I will trust you, and I will endure. So so Romans 8.32, get this. If you ask me, what's your favorite verse in all the Bible? It's this verse. It is this verse. you ask me next week, it might be different, but almost always it's this verse. He who did not spare his own son. God the Father willingly put his son forward. The son willingly obeyed the Father for joy and glory because it is the apex of his beauty being shown all the world. This is the bloody cross of Christ the empty tomb, the resurrection, in glory, he gave him up for us all. If he did that to save you while you are a weak, ungodly sinner rebelling against him, if he would willingly do that, he doesn't owe you that. He doesn't owe me that. He willingly did that. Then listen, listen to the logic. How will he not also with him, with Christ, give you, ready, all things If you can trust God with your salvation and your eternity, do you think you can trust Him with this momentary affliction? The answer is, yeah, I can. And we can join Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when it says these light momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is yet to be revealed. Your afflictions are working for you. Why? Because God takes all of those things. And for those who love him and are called according to his purposes, he forces them to do good to you. Why? Because he loves you. I don't know if he loves me. Look to the cross. <laughs> he loves you. He loves you. And he doesn't love to afflict you. But he loves you enough to afflict you. That's the paradox of paradoxes. The cross of Christ, it's the most horrific happening in all the history of the world, and yet it's the most beautiful. The universe's saddest moment and the happiest turn came together at Golgotha in a single crooked tree. You can trust him. And I pray if you're like, I don't know if I can well, I'm going to pray help you right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for being infinitely wise. We see so limitedly. God, help us to trust you. Right? We, I have no doubt. I can say this on behalf of all of us. We joined the man in, in Mark. I think it's eight or nine. Oh, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Help me to trust you. Help us to believe. God pour out amazing grace to the power of the Spirit right now and comfort, my friends, those whom you love. You know whatever crook is in their road that they would like to see go away. I pray you give them wisdom in that moment. I pray you give them grace in that moment to endure and to continue to fight the good fight of faith, knowing knowing that in any moment when we doubt your goodness, oh God, draw our gaze upon the cross of Christ and let us be reminded of your profound, infinite love in the fact that you joyfully, gladly gave your son to save sinners who were rebelling against you because you're good, not because we're good. And let us humble ourselves by grace and receive mercy in our help in time of need. We ask in Jesus' beautiful name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.